Good evening. Good evening. I'm starting to wonder if we if we keep losing people at the rate we're losing people, if any of you are going to be left in a couple weeks. Raise your hand if you're planning on being here the last week. Okay. Okay. Hmm? June 26th. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We are, we're going to go ahead and get started. So let me pray for us. And then we'll get talking. All right, we're going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and that your love is expressed to us in one of the many ways it's expressed to us is in the fact that you have given us your word, that you have not hidden yourself from us, but that you have revealed yourself to us, that we might know you. So we pray that as we study your word, that we would not simply study it, that we might master it, but that we might know you, and that your word might master us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good evening. So, what I want you to do uh, right now for the next 10, 15 minutes is talk at your tables about your homework from last week, specifically the kind of mini word study you did on the term fellow worker in the New Testament. Uh, so this is page, like page 99 and page 100 in your workbook. Um, so focus your discussion on that. What did you, what did you find about that term as you looked at the different verses that, that used it? Uh, and then we'll talk about that a little bit when you guys are done. And then after we talk about that, I want to circle back around and I want to hit some stuff that we didn't hit last time because I ran out of time. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Figures, yeah. And, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about some other stuff with word studies. And then we're going to move into talking about uh, translations and comparing translations and how that's a, a good tool. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you translate if that's what you're concerned about for your homework. But we're going to talk about comparing multiple English translations and why that matters. Okay, so... Take about 10, 15 minutes, and then when, uh, you, when that time is up, we will come back together and we'll talk. All right. I think I actually gave you more than 15 minutes this time, so you're welcome. So, what did you guys learn about the term fellow workers? It's, it's one word in Greek, so you know. So, it's one word. So, think of it as if it's got like a hyphen in between it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, it referred to people in Paul's ministry, not Christians in general. Right, so, and that could be something where uh, I could see somebody reading this and saying, oh, fellow workers, well, that's all of us because we're, we're all involved in the work of ministry. I would say, well, yes, I think that's true. I think that statement is true, but the question is whether or not Paul actually means that by this word, right? So, and, and I think you're right. I think this is not something that refers, that Paul uses to refer to Christians in general. He has other words that he uses for that, saints and believers and so forth. But this one he reserves for a certain group of people. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay, so they're to be honored. Others are supposed to acknowledge them. Okay, which verse was that in? 16, 16. Actually, let's go to 16. First Corinthians 16, 16. I was going to say, 16, 16 doesn't, just doesn't help me that much. <laughs> it eliminates some of the books, but not all of them. So 1 Corinthians 16, 16. So you may be in subjection to such men. and Say again? Oh, yeah, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Yeah. Yep. Since we're talking about translation tonight, if you have the New American Standard, your translation says that you also uh, be in subjection to such men and everyone who helps in the work and labors. Helps in the work, that's, that's the word. That's the word fellow workers. So... Um, for whatever reason, the New American Standard has chosen to translate it as helps in the work rather than fellow workers, and it translates the same word a different way somewhere else. So the ESV has fellow workers. This is one of those places where it might be harder if you had the New American Standard. And you're, I think when I first looked at it, I thought, no, wait a minute, where's that word? So. Okay, so um, you're supposed to be the way that New American Standard says you're supposed to be in subjection to these people. You're supposed to acknowledge them. What else? Show them hospitality? Where's that? Okay, 3 John 1 8. I think this is the only place where the, that word is used, and it's not by Paul. We ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So are the, is it that we're supposed to show fellow workers hospitality? Or is it something else? Okay, what, is, what does the NIV say? Okay, so we should show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. So, again, the question would be, um, 
is that saying that we are to show hospitality to fellow workers or that we are in showing our hospitality to the people that John's referring to that we will be fellow workers? Right. We ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So this is not a special class of person, even if it is, uh, Paul uses it specifically to refer to some people and not others. Uh, John seems to say that it seems like anybody could be a fellow worker if they choose to participate in the ministry this way. Can it only refer to men? No? How do you know? Okay. Philippians 4.3. What do we learn in Philippians 4.3? Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. Okay? So there it would seem to refer to both men and women. Is there anywhere else? Romans 16.3? Who does it refer to there? Priscilla. It says, greet Prisca, which is just a shortened uh, form of Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So Paul uses it to refer to men and women. Uh, and so we would say this is probably not, so th there are certain words in the New Testament that we say are basically synonymous. So the word pastor, elder, and overseer, all basically the same thing, refers to the same office in the church. Um, we would say that that's probably not the case with this word. So this idea of being a fellow worker, that's not an, an office in the church that's mentioned elsewhere. Um, that it's, it's something different. It's a designation for people in the church, but it's not limited to those who, who specifically hold an office in the church. Right? Mm -hmm. Sure, so... A number of them appear to be leaders. There's a bunch of them that seem like they're leading house churches, right? So Philemon is called a fellow worker. And at the beginning of Philemon, it says, this is to the church that meets in your house. So Philemon's probably the leader of a house church. Priscilla and Aquila are lead a house church. We see that at the end of 1 Corinthians. So it definitely seems to refer to, to leaders, people that, it says people that labor with him in the gospel. Colossians 4.11, it's the people who worked for the kingdom of God. Philippians 4.3, it's those who labor side by side with him for the sake of the gospel. So, 
In Philippians 2.25, where Epaphroditus is called a fellow worker, um, having looked at the way that Paul and then the one time that John uses the word, what do we maybe learn about Epaphroditus? Say again? Okay, okay, he's busy. Well, he did go from Philippi to Rome. So, yeah, so he, there's, there's a lot of stuff he's doing. So he's not just uh, some guy that the Philippians picked to say, hey, go check on Paul. Right? If Paul's calling him a fellow worker, he's probably a leader in the Philippian church in some regard. Now, what that exactly looks like, we don't know. Yeah, now what's interesting about that is one of the reasons um, that he calls him a soldier could potentially be, and this is historical context, so this is going back to like the first or second lesson that we did. Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was, it was colonized, it was populated by a lot of ex-Roman soldiers. And so there are things in the book that seem to be kind of Paul pointing to certain Roman things as uh, ways that his audience might understand what he's talking about. So there's two times that he talks about being citizens. Being a citizen is a Roman idea. Um, uh, when he talks about Epaphroditus being a fellow soldier, if you can imagine the Philippian church, many of the Philippian converts being people who maybe at one time served in the Roman army, for Paul to call Epaphroditus a fellow soldier might evoke in them an idea of, I know what it's like to have a fellow soldier. So that's the way that Paul feels about Epaphroditus, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So in 1 Corinthians 3 9, uh, the reference says, that uh, Paul and Apollos are God's fellow workers. Whereas most of the other time, if not every other time, it's uh, Paul saying, this is my fellow worker or our fellow workers. Um, but for, for Paul to say that he and Apollos are God's fellow workers, what does that mean? It's something to think about. We're not going to solve it tonight. So, but that's a it's a great observation. That's that's a very unique way for him to use it. He doesn't use it that way anywhere else. So that might be something to to look at the context of that passage and ask. Well, why doesn't Paul just say that they are fellow that he and Apollos are just fellow workers, or Apollos is my fellow worker? Why does he say? It's God's fellow or They're God's fellow workers. You can do that on your own. That'll be fun for you. Um, any, any general questions about word study using a concordance? You didn't have to use a concordance for this. They gave you all the texts, but anything at all.
you don't you don't have to use blue letter bible that was just a that was a that was a freebie just it's an easy way to to go about doing it so you don't you don't have to use it i think it would be valuable if you chose to use it for your study but you don't have to use it for anything that we're doing now yeah that was just uh, showing you a way that you could that you could access the original languages and and figure that stuff out on your own yes Right. Yep. So it's one. It's one word in Greek. Yep. Yep. All right. You guys are all experts now. Cool. Okay. Um, well, maybe you won't be experts after this. Uh, so. Obviously, last time we talked about the importance of uh, studying particular words and why that can be an important part of Bible study. So what we didn't get to is talking about all the mistakes that we can make when we do this. Um, For some reason, word studies uh, have a, a lot of potholes. It's a lot of things that you can really easily do when you're doing a word study. And because you're working with Greek or Hebrew and um, things like lexicons, it can feel like what you're finding is this really deep, important stuff, but it might not actually be the case. Okay? So we're, we're going to talk about this. Um, did that color of that screen just change? (laughs) I feel like that's not a great sign for the rest of the evening, considering the storm. So, okay, we're going to talk about, just for the the next little bit, four of the major kind of pitfalls that we can face when we do word studies. Um, And if this is stuff that you've done before, that's that's okay, like we're, we're learning. Um, but these are things that, and, and I can promise you, I have done every single one of these, and I'll share some examples of how I've done it, uh, just so you know that this is not me sitting on my high horse saying, well, you people need to figure it out. If you're smart like me, you wouldn't do it. No, I've done all this. So, um, we, oftentimes we, we, we call these mistakes fallacies, um, so that's just the word that's used, so you don't have to just say mistake. Okay. So, the first one we're going to talk about is the root fallacy or the root mistake. So, words, uh, words have roots. So, words are made up of other words and come from other words. And uh, oftentimes, you can see this because there are words that are made up of a combination of words, compound words, things like that. So, words have roots. And uh, the root fallacy says that basically a word means whatever its root means. Okay. Uh, so, which is not necessarily true. And so the English example, as you can see, is pineapple, right? Now, when I say pineapple, I'm assuming all of you think of that, the prickly fruit that grows on the ground in Hawaii or somewhere else. But a pineapple is, we know, is not an apple that comes from a pine tree. I hope you know that. And so simply being able to say that 
the word is a combination of pine and apple doesn't actually tell us anything about what the word means. Somewhere back in the history of the English language, somebody stuck those two words together to describe that thing, and now it, it means that. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean an apple that came from a pie tree. It probably never meant that. So why is that the word in English? I have no clue. We could probably find it in a dictionary. But knowing those two words make up the word pineapple doesn't tell us anything about what the word pineapple means. So this is what we do in, in sometimes in, in, it especially happens in Greek. I think we find words and then when you're on Blue Letter Bible or something like that, you'll go and you'll see, well, the root of this word is this and it means this. And, and then you go down this long kind of rabbit trail of all the roots that it comes from and you concoct this really elaborate definition for what it is based on all these root words when it actually doesn't mean any of that. But it can, it can feel like, wow, I'm really getting into the deep stuff now. It's like, well, you're getting into, you're getting into it deep. It's just not necessarily good Bible study. Um, so he, here's a, a, maybe a really common one. The word church, okay? First of all, the English word church comes from the German word Kirche, all right? So that just means church. Surprise, surprise. You guys, you guys, this is profound, right? You guys are real happy you came out for this. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. How many of you have heard that word before, ekklesia? Okay. So ekklesia is a combination of two Greek words. One's a preposition, ek, which means from or out of, and the other one is kaleo, which means to call. And so um, the uh, the way that the Greek is put together, it would be something like uh, those who are called out. Now, when that word first came about, it probably had something to do with the idea of being called out, but the word in just general Greek just means assembly, an assembly of people. And so way back when, when they invented the word, it probably just meant people were called out of their homes to assemble in the, in the town. And then... The, uh, the Holy Spirit decided to use that word to describe this assembly of Jesus, the people who, who gathered together to worship Jesus. So some people want to make a big deal out of the fact that it's uh, those who are called out and say that, so the church means those who are called out, called out of the world, called out from sin, uh, called out. Uh, for God and so forth. And we would say, well, yeah, theologically, that's probably true. We can find other places in Scripture that talk about believers in Christ being those who are called, those who have been called out of darkness and into light and so forth. But the question is, is that what the word church means? And is that the connotation that it's supposed to give us? And I think the answer is no. I think it just means assembly of people, and then it takes on this technical sense in the New Testament of being uh, the, the church, the assembly of God's people. And then beyond that, it actually takes on a whole bunch of different connotations in the New Testament, uh, including, so, you know, people will often uh, want to say, well, the church isn't, thus saith the Lord. Dang, it's 
The pillars of the earth are shaking. Okay. So, um, where was it? That was cool. My son's probably freaking out right now. He hates thunder. Um, oh, so people will oftentimes want to say the church is not a building. The church is not a worship service. The church is the people. I say, yes, that's true. Mostly. Because Paul also uses in 1 Corinthians, he says um, about the, the gathered worship of the people of God. He says, when you are in church. And so that's not just the people. It's actually the assembly of people who have come together to worship that particular moment in time. When you are in church, this is the way you're supposed to act. Right? So that it's used in, in more than one way. So, but it doesn't necessarily mean those who are called out. That's not necessarily what the word church means. I'm sorry if I've burst your bubble on that. So that's the root fallacy. Uh, another English example I can think of real quick is um, a butterfly. Right? So you all know that butterfly doesn't mean what the words mean. It means something totally different. A fly man means a flying stick of butter. That's right. <laughs> so the next one is called the technical meaning fallacy. Um, so when we make this mistake with words, uh, we believe that an author always intends a very specific theological meaning by the word rather than maybe using words as synonyms or interchangeably or choosing to use one word over another for a stylistic or literary reason. Um, so, um, I can think of some different examples for this one. The one that I have up here is, basically, what this comes down to is people who want to make really, really, really specific definitions of certain words in certain situations that if you actually look at the way those words are used across the Bible, it doesn't actually hold up. All right, so here, I'm going to burst your bubble again on this one. So Greek has three words, at least three words. It's actually probably more like five uh, that are translated in English as love, right? How many of you have ever heard this before? Right, Greek has three words. This is, this is real popular fodder for preachers, right? And so there's agape love and phileo love and eros love and all, you know, right, all this. And so, you know, eros, they'll say, well, eros is, is that's like erotic, and so that's this kind of romantic love. And then they'll say, then there's uh, agape or agapao is the verb uh, and phileo, um, and they'll say, here, there are these different nuances, and so agape, that's God's love. That's this supreme, self-sacrificial love. That's the love that God has for us, and that, God, that the Father has for the Son, and all these things. And the place that people will want to go is in uh, John, I think it's John 20 or John 21, when Jesus is restoring Peter, and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. The first two times Jesus asks, uh, he uses the word agapao. Peter, do you agape me? And every time Peter responds with, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then the very last time, Jesus uses the word phileo. And so, I guarantee you, you go and you Google this, and you will find pages and pages and pages of people who will preach sermons drawing all these profound theological conclusions from this, from the fact that they use these different words. Now, the observation is good. He uses different words. The problem is that those words are probably a lot more synonymous than we've often been led to believe. There may be some distinction, uh, but there's a whole lot of overlap. And, and for somebody to say, well, phileo, that's, that's brotherly love, right? Phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, for, for us to say, well, that's just brotherly love. That's not God's love. That's not this supreme self-sacrificial love. There are a number of times in John's gospel where Jesus says that the Father phileos the Son. And so if that's only this kind of lesser form of brotherly love, then did Jesus get it wrong? I don't think so. And so I think this is a situation of people wanting to do word studies, but then they're looking for too much in it. They're trying to make too fine a point, and so they come up with something that sounds really good, and it preaches well. Do you agape Jesus, or you just phileo him, right? It's like, oh man, that'll send people out the door screaming for Jesus. Except that that's probably not what the word means. And so if we're going to be serious students of the Bible, we need to we need to follow where the actual text leads us, not what we think sounds good and will preach well, right? Or will sound good in the Bible study that you're doing. And so there's, there's probably not this really deep theological significance to why Jesus uses that word and Peter uses, uses the other word, um, it's, it's sort of like, I think we used this example before. You know, if you ask, well, then why, why does it say it that way? You remember me saying, why does, uh, in John 8, why does Jesus stoop down and write in the dirt? Right? Do you remember why? This is, this is, this is really easy. We have no idea. It just says it. And so the sermons you hear that, that are, um, drawing this intense theological significance out of what he's doing by drawing something in the dirt. Like, those are really creative. And, and it's, not that they're, it's not that they're bad or evil or something like that, but I'm just saying, that's, that's not in the text. It just, it doesn't say that, right? It could just be John was saying, hey, I was there, and while this was all going on, Jesus is stooped down, drawing in the dirt. I don't know why, he just did this. Yeah, so, that, so it's a histor- it could be a historical detail to prove that it's an eyewitness account. That's possible. Um, is, you know, is there more significance to it? Well, I, I suppose there could be, but the text doesn't tell us. And so when the text is silent, we can't, we can't make pronouncements that this is what it means. So, yeah. Wait, how do you know that Jesus Christ is 
So how would you, basically, how would you know when this is happening? Um, and the example is sin, transgression, iniquity, and there's like a whole bunch of other words that kind of fit in that range of, uh, of things. And so the, the long way to do it, which I know is what you all are looking for, would be to, uh, particularly, I think about this particularly in Hebrew because that's where those words show up a, a lot, uh, would be to take every time that word occurs in the Bible and study it and figure out, is there a pattern to the way this is used? Right, so um, is uh, transgression something that's used in these particular circumstances when it's these particular laws and things like that? Now, in all likelihood, you guys are probably not going to do that, right? I'm not, I'm not going to do that, so, you're not, so I don't expect you to do it. So um, generally then we would point you in the direction with some good resources that would help you with that. Um, the place where I probably wouldn't point you in general is Google. <laughs> yeah, I've said this before. I feel like I need to say it again because I'm like really serious about it. Um, probably Googling what's the difference between sin, transgression, and iniquity is probably not going to be the best way to go. And so we're going to talk in a couple weeks about secondary resources. So when you go to do your study and you're like, is there a difference here, or are they just interchangeable? And I really want to be careful with this. We'll talk about, here's something that you can go to that will help with that. Um, so, Blue Letter Bible, you're probably pretty safe um, with that. But, um, but with everything, and it's not just, so, so there's, here's the one big kind of overarching caveat. Uh, there's nothing outside of the Bible that is totally trustworthy, Right? And so, even if you have something um, by, you know, it's written by a guy that has more degrees than Fahrenheit, and you, and you want uh, to, to, to look at it and say, oh, this is what it means, there's no guarantee that, oh, that's, that is absolutely the truth. And so, you're always going to go back and say, well, but, but is that what Scripture actually says? Right? Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be totally suspicious of everything. So that's the other end of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum is I trust everything everybody says no matter what. The other end is I don't trust anybody at all ever. And it's just, it's just me and I'm the final arbiter of, of truth. That's not a great position to be in either. Right, so, but we'll talk about using some of those resources and which ones that we would say, hey, this is probably a good one for you to go to. Other ones that maybe we would say, let me steer clear of this one. So Google, great for other things. Not so great for Bible study. Does that help? Where's my clicker? All right. Here's a fun one if you guys want big words. Illegitimate totality transfer. You don't need to remember that. I call this the it means everything at once fallacy. So this is when we think... We talked about this a little bit last time as we talked about word studies. This is when we think that a word means every possible thing it could mean in its dictionary definition at once, and that the author intends for all of those definitions to be present in that one use, right? And so it would be like we used the example a couple weeks ago of the, the English word run, right? Do you remember how many definitions I said run had? A lot. It was like over 100. Right? 
I didn't actually go and look. I read that somewhere. I didn't actually go look it up. I probably should have done that. Um, so yeah, I could use. I'll use Google for that. So, um, they'd be like me saying, uh, "I'm going to run to the store," but then assuming that uh, that you are going to pick up. That I mean, not only am I going to go out, get in my car, and drive to the store, but I'm also using all 134 other meanings of the word run at the same time in order to communicate something profound to you, right? Is this the way language works? No, typically not. So are there times when there's double meaning? Yeah, there's wordplay. And usually those are, those are things that you're going to see from the context. You'll start to get an idea of, ah, okay, I see why he's, I see why he's saying this. Um, and, and, uh, but most of the time, you're not, it's not going to mean all the things it could possibly mean at once. Even if it means maybe more than one thing, it's probably not going to mean more than two things. Um, Remember, the, the Bible was not written, despite how it feels sometimes, the Bible was written to common people, right? The, the Greek that the Bible, that the New Testament was written in is called Koine Greek. It means common Greek. So there's a, there's a different kind of Greek that was what the, the philosophers and the poets wrote in, and it's really complex. Uh, and then there's the Koine Greek, which was just like what you talk to somebody on the street with, and that's what the Bible was written in. The Bible was written to be understood, it wasn't written to be a secret code book. And so, um, we ought not assume that there are these levels and layers of hidden meaning that God is trying to say, oh, you've got to figure it out. Good luck. So, oh, I already put my example up. I didn't even hide it, so you guys have been reading it this whole time. That's no fun. Ah, okay. So, the Greek word that is translated in English, fervent or zealous, the word zeo. So, it can mean to boil, so like boiling water, or to be zealous or fervent in spirit, to show complete commitment to something with enthusiasm. Now, we, we have words like this too, where it's a figure of speech, and so, you know, we could say, I don't think we do it with the word boil, um, but um, for somebody to say, I'm hopping mad, right? Now, in all likelihood, you're probably not imagining somebody hopping up and down because they're so mad. It just means they're really mad. So when we say that, we don't intend for people to see the image of somebody actually hopping. Now, I, I preached a, a message one time. This is years ago when I worked for the Navigators, and I, and I taught a message at our large group meeting on uh, Apollos, who's got a little section in, in Acts 18. I love Apollos, um, even though we don't hear about him a whole lot. He sounds like he was pretty awesome. And so I wanted to preach this message on, on him and what we could learn from his life. And uh, it says in Acts 18.25 that, uh, that Apollos was zeo in spirit. Right? He was fervent in spirit. And I and I took this to mean that he was so zealous that he was boiling over. And I told this really elaborate story about how I was boiling macaroni one time. And it boiled up over the, uh, 
the, you've done this before where it boils, you, you don't wash it and it boils up and starts spilling all over the place and some of the macaroni actually came out and then lit on fire. I was just out of college, if that gives you any kind of where my mindset was, my frontal lobe wasn't fully developed yet. And, and so I, I, I told this really elaborate story of, uh, well, it was a true story of how I lit this macaroni and cheese on fire be- and it was boiling and, and that's how, f- you know, and I was like, and that's how fervent Apollos was. And it's like, okay, well, that's a great illustration maybe, but that's probably not the way that Luke intended us for take the word. Say again. Yeah, I was pretty. Yeah, I was pretty zeo in the sermon. I was pretty. I was pretty fired up. Uh, unfortunately, later I came to find out that oh, that's probably not the what it means. Um, so it probably just means he was really zealous, right? It's like when people and this is we've we've done this a couple times where people are like, well, okay, well, what's, what's the, you know, what's the Greek, you know, mean for that? And we're we're looking for things like this as if it's going to be the secret key that's going to unlock everything. If we just knew what that meant. And like a lot of the times, it, it means zealous, fervent. I mean, so when people say, you maybe have heard me do this before, we read the word predestined in the Bible, right? So in love, God predestined us. So like, well, what does the word predestined mean uh, in, in Greek? I say, it's really, it, this is really profound. It means predestined. That's <laughs> what it means. So now, then you have to do the work of saying, now, now, why does that matter theologically? How does that fit with what's going on in the context? What does that teach us about what God is doing? Now, those are really important questions, but those questions aren't going to be answered by looking at the word necessarily, the makeup of the word and all the things that the dictionaries say it could mean. So it means everything at once. No, it doesn't. All right. Oh, this is another fun one. Here's another bubble that we're going to burst. I just love doing this. We can keep doing this all night. So this is called anachronism. Anybody know what anachronism means? An anachronism? Anybody heard that before? So an anachronism would be like um, if you were uh, watching a movie about World War II and somebody pulled out an iPhone and started talking on it. Uh, Basically it means um, taking something that existed later and putting it back into something that happened earlier. Um, so with language, this happens when we take uh, something that a word came to mean later and read it back into the use of that word earlier and say that because it ended up meaning this, that's what it means when it was used back then. Okay? Um, so now, now this can happen sometimes in English, if we're reading an, uh, an older English Bible. Uh, so if you're reading a King James Bible or if you even go older than that and you're reading like a, a Bible that was translated by William Tyndale or Miles Coverdale, some of the older English translations, you'll find words and it will be very odd why they're using those words. You're like, that word, I don't think that word means that there. I was looking and I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head the verse that this happened in. Um, uh, but it, it talked about uh, the, some men wearing um, gay attire. Okay, so probably doesn't mean the first thing that you think it means. 
right? The word gay means something different in English now in its common usage than it used to. And so to translate it that way probably doesn't mean that. So that would be kind of for us to say, oh, that means they're talking about homosexual attire. Well, that's probably not true. That, that would be the, an example of the anachronism fallacy. We're taking what the word commonly means now, and we're saying that must be what it meant then. Okay? So uh, one example, again, another one that preaches really well is that the Greek word for power is dunamis. Right? And so I've heard a number of sermons uh, that talk about how, uh, well, the Greek word dunamis, that's the root of the English word dynamite. And so in Romans 1.16, where it says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, they, they build this whole illustration about how the gospel is the dynamite of God. It's like, well, uh, okay, but the Greek word doesn't mean explosive. It just means power or ability. So, you know, and we even, we don't actually directly get our English word from, from the Greek word. We get it from Swedish. And they got it from Latin and they got it from Greek. So it, we're not even directly connected to that. So, but we, we can make this mistake when we say because uh, our word may be through a bunch of different channels derived from this Greek word. It mean uh, it it now or it means then what it means now. So because it means dynamite now, which is TNT explosive, that must be what the reference was then. So Paul intended for us to hear the gospel is the dynamite explosive power of God. I, I don't think that's the case. Are you trying to get me in trouble? Uh, so the question was, would I say the King James is not a good Bible because it's filled with anachronisms? I would say, no, I think the King James is a good Bible, particularly because when it was translated, it made a lot of sense, okay? But it's... 400 years old. It's more than 400 years old. And English has changed a lot. And so, I think it's a perfectly good Bible with some, I have some minor quibbles with it in places. Language aside, just textual stuff. Um, but would I use it as my primary Bible translation? No. Um, for a number of reasons, one of which is English has changed. And so the way that we translate the Bible has to change. Which is a great segue into what we're going to talk about tonight. Oh, that's awful looking. That's disappointing. That says compare different translations. So tonight we're going to talk about the importance of comparing English Bible translations. Before we go on, just does anybody have any questions about anything that we just covered in the last like half hour? Are you guys all super solid on that? 
Uh-oh. It's, you know, if, yeah, so Carson, so Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz and it, it's his, is he, it's his fiance, his fiance, okay, so Carson Wentz and his fiance just got tattoos that have agape on it because it's the supreme form of God's love, but your, your observation is correct. If he only knew that those, were, that those terms were actually a lot more interchangeable, he could have gotten phileo, which would be a lot more related to Philadelphia. That seems like a, that seems like a big swing and a miss by Carson. He had a, he had he had a chan- he had a chance to make it he had a chance to honor Philadelphia using a word from the Bible, and he missed it. I'm just saying. I forget, we're gonna we're gonna write to him. We're gonna complain to him. I'm sure he's gonna love that. And so again, now is that is that wrong? Well, no. I mean, it means love, and it's used of God's love for us. It's used of the Father's love for the Son. And so. Yeah, the Bible absolutely uses it that way. But does it always use it in that really distinct, separate way from the other terms for love? No. And so if the reasoning is because uh, this is what this means and this other word means something else, it's like, I don't know that the evidence actually bears that out. Okay, thanks. Appreciate that. (laughs) Tell me and come talk to me if you want Okay. So we're talking about comparing different translations uh, of the Bible tonight. Um, So uh, English, unlike almost every other language in the world, has an embarrassing plethora of Bible translations. Uh, I didn't look up the number. I probably should have, but there's a ton of English Bible translations. You go on Bible Gateway and look up all the different translations that you could find. And so, only in the English-speaking world could a, a first of all, the, the kind of um, study that we can do using multiple different translations that are translated by committees of people who have studied the original languages and really know what they're talking about, uh, only in an English-speaking context is that really possible. And there are tons of other languages that don't even have a translation of the Bible in their language. My wife and I went to the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. last year, and we, I think it was last year, it's the end of last year. Is it May? I don't remember what month it is. I think it was November last year. We went right after it opened. And they have a room there uh, dedicated to uh, tracking Bible translations. And so they have basically a big a room with uh, it's got some TVs in it, but it's got bookshelves. And on the shelves are uh, copies of Bibles from every language that there's a Bible translated. And then uh, little boxes uh, that are placeholders for uh, either copies that they, they don't have because of how rare they are uh, or uh, languages where translations are underway uh, or uh, a huge number that were just gray boxes where there's no translation and there's no, there's no effort to start a translation at this point. All right, and it was, it was a wonderful and also really sad reminder of the fact that we are so privileged not only to be able to read our Bible 
in our language, but to do so in 20, 30, 40 different versions? That's unbelievable. And so it's a huge privilege for us to be able to, to study the Bible using multiple translations. And uh, using translations can be a really, a really good tool to help you in your study, particularly to identify things that you ought to look closer at. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, but here's your uh, crash course in translations. This is sort of a hobby horse of mine. Like, I love Bible translation and translation theory, so we could talk for the next couple hours about this if you wanted to. So I'm really going to try to keep it short. Um, newsflash, the Bible was not written in English. I, I hope that's not new news to you. The Bible was written, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic, which is a language that's very similar to Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, and so... Every uh, English Bible that we have is a translation of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, and every English translation, or most English translations, are what we call committee translations. So uh, they are translations that are, uh, are done by a committee of scholars who know Hebrew and Greek, uh, oftentimes, they are made up of people from different denominations, so there's not denominational bias, uh, so that if you have somebody who's a, who's a Baptist and somebody who's a Presbyterian, they're going to they're do their best to translate the texts uh, in a way that uh, does not lean into one of their biases, uh, biases uh, or get, well, so now the Catholics are different. They, they have their own translations that are done by very smart people, and actually, um, you read a lot of them, there's, there's nothing in particular that would be Catholic doctrine. Um, a lot of that's just kind of made up on the back end. So, but don't tell the Pope I said that. So, yeah. I'll tell you if it's not a right question, don't worry. Are there different forms of Hebrew and Aramaic that they've written? So, um, yes and no, sort of. This is, this is my, my standard answer, right? Yes and no. Uh, the New Testament was written probably over about the course of 60 years. So, the Greek in the New Testament is very consistent. It's kind of one era of Greek. The Old Testament was written over the course of about a thousand years, and Hebrew changed over the course of a thousand years. And so texts that were written closer to the end of the Old Testament uh, differ in some ways grammatically and, and uh, the way that certain words are used than texts that were written way at the beginning. So they call it early, early Hebrew, middle Hebrew, late Hebrew. Um, so the people that are translating stuff like that know that really well. So, but yeah, so like any language that's being used, it evolves over time. Things change. So, uh, quick side note, um, when Israel was established as a nation in 1948 or 47 or whatever that was, um, they, they started using Hebrew as the language, but Hebrew was a dead language at the time. The only way that Hebrew had been kept alive was through the synagogue. 
Um, but, you know, so the Jews may have spoke, they might have spoken Yiddish or something like that, but they weren't speaking Hebrew. Hebrew wasn't a spoken language. And so they reintroduced Hebrew as a spoken language for the nation of Israel. And so basically, it was like Hebrew as a spoken language kind of ceased when the Hebrews were exiled. And when they came back from the exile, they spoke Aramaic because that's what they spoke in Babylon. And the only thing that they remembered about Hebrew was from their religious writings. So it's like they hit the pause button on spoken Hebrew way back then, and then they picked it up again in 1947. Now, over the last, how many years is that, 70, 70 70-something years? Over the last 70 years, uh, Hebrew has changed dramatically. Modern Hebrew that's spoken in Israel has changed dramatically because it's a living language. People use words differently. And so, even from 70 years ago, there's been a tremendous shift in the way that Hebrew works, conventions and so forth. You see that in English, too. You know, every year there's a new word. You know, it's like, what's the word of the year, you know, this year? And uh, if you go to Urban Dictionary, which I don't recommend, you find things, ways that things are used that maybe you, you didn't know. If you're a parent of teenagers, you may... You may know that, so. No, go, go. Uh, okay. So, every English Bible translation has, usually has a different kind of translation philosophy. Uh, so, there's not one right way to translate something. Uh, this, is how, this is how language and translation works. No two languages are exactly the same. And so, translation is, is part science, there are rules, but it's also part art. So it's an art and a science. And so there are different ways of translating things into, uh, into English or into any language. Uh, if you, does anybody here speak a language other than English, like fluently? Yeah. All right. So there's multiple ways that you guys could say, what, native language? Hindi. Hindi. Okay. So there's multiple ways you could say things. Uh, in English that would probably faithfully render what you mean in your native languages. Um, so there's not necessarily one right answer. There might be some that are closer than others. And there are some, I know I talk to people who speak other languages, and they're like, there's really no good way to translate this in English. There's just nothing. You guys probably have stuff like that, right? Yeah, so, um, so translation is, is hard work, which is why it's good that we have lots of really smart people that do it. Uh, and put Bibles out so that we can read it and benefit from it. Um, but because there are multiple different ways to translate things, it means that one of the ways that we can really benefit from that is if we read multiple different translations and see the way that different people have chosen to take something and, use, and doing it from a spectrum of types of translations. Uh, and so we're going to talk here in a minute about those types of translations. So um, translations will range from more to less literal. Now, literal does not necessarily mean better. Okay? When, we, when we're using the idea of literal, we're meaning it's, take, it's trying to take one word for one word and put it from the original language into, into English. Now, oftentimes we like that because it shows us more of what the original language structure was like and 
and tries to take seriously that every word is something that God has intended to be there. Um, But in reality, there's no translation that's truly literal. And there's no translation that's truly word for word. None of them. And so, in every translation, we have to change things in order to make them make sense in English. Uh, The only, I will use this in in quotes, translation uh, that doesn't do that, at least with grammar, the way that words are put together, is what's called an interlinear Bible. Anybody ever seen an interlinear Bible? It's, it's basically, it's a Bible that has at least two lines. One line is the original language, so Greek or Hebrew, and below every word is the matching English word. And so you're like, okay, well, that is word for word. The problem is it's not translation because it will read like gibberish because Greek word order is way different than English word order. And it doesn't take into account the multiple different potential meanings of words. And so even then, every time you translate a word, you're making an interpretation because you're saying, in this context, it means this, not that. And so every translation of the Bible is an interpretation in in some regard, and no translation can be entirely literal because no two languages are exactly the same. So we're we're always having to take it from the original language and say it as faithfully as possible as we can in English, right? So here's, a, uh, here's an example of how you can know no translation is actually totally literal, okay? You guys probably know, know this text, Exodus 34, 6. So the New American Standard, the Bible we use here, says the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And you can see some other translations. King James, that idea of slow to anger, they say long-suffering. The NIV and the NLT both say slow to anger. Um, the literal translation is that God is long of nose. I'm dead serious. That's what it says in Hebrew. It says God is long of nose. Because in Hebrew, a way that you talk about a person being angry is that they have a burning nose. So when it says that God was angered, it says God's nose was burning. And that probably has something to do with when you get angry and your face gets red and your nose gets red, and that's probably something to do with that, maybe. But that's the idiom that's used in Hebrew. Now, No English Bible translation is going to say that God is long of nose. Why? Because we have no idea what that means. And we start thinking it's like Pinocchio. He's long of no he's like long of like long of knowing. So that's that's creative. Not totally true. Um, so, so that's a situation where every English translation is going to say, that doesn't make sense in English, so we need to say what it says in a way that makes sense in English. So every translation will do that. Now, the question is, how, how many times and in what situations do you do that? Do you try to translate it uh, like what it says in Greek or Hebrew every single time, even if it's not going to make sense in English, and say, okay, let them figure it out? 
uh, or are you going to translate it in a way that might make sense to, to modern English readers? And this is the, this is the challenge of translation. Say again? Depend, what Bible are you using? What Bible are you using? What translation? NASB. Yeah, so I have a love-hate love relationship with the NAS. So we use it. I preach from it. It's a wonderful translation, but there are times that I come to it and I'm like, I don't know what they were thinking. This makes no sense in English. So actually, uh, they're actually next year, I think, there's an update coming to the, to the NAS. So hopefully they're going to... Uh, make the English a little smoother so it, it doesn't read so much um, like painful, a painful combination of Greek and English or something like that. The NAS? Yeah. I have... Yeah, I have problems with every Bible translation. Just, just to put it out there, there's, there's, there's no Bible translation that I have found that I would say I agree 100% with the way they've translated everything. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't trust them. I, I want to make that super clear. Just because there are things I'm like, you know, I wish they would say that differently. Or I think, it, I don't think that comma belongs there or things like that. Like, that doesn't mean you can't trust it. Um, so, in, in most cases, uh, every major Bible translation that's used by evangelicals is done by people who love Jesus, who think the Bible's inspired and inerrant and are trying to communicate what it says in English in the most faithful way possible. They have different philosophies of translations. We'll talk about that. But, uh, but you, you can trust them. And so comparing translations will help you get a feel for uh, the original language behind the text, even if you don't know it. Because you'll see you compare 10 different translations and you'll see, okay, they translated it these different ways. And so that starts to give you kind of a, even if you can't get to, to what's in the middle of the frame, you can kind of start to see where the frame goes and see kind of all the things it could, could potentially mean. Yeah. Do the Greeks have, are the Greeks one up on us? Uh, not necessarily because uh, Greek, modern Greek, is different from, from ancient Greek. Now, modern uh, Greek as it exists today has been spoken for the last 2,000 years. And so, think about Hebrew changing that much over the course of 70 years since it was reintroduced. Uh, Greeks had 2,000 years. So, there's a number of things that are the same, but there are a number of things that are different. And so, for a... Um, for a modern Greek reader reading the Bible in if you're reading the original language, the original manuscripts of the Bible, not a modern Greek translation, uh, it would be like us reading English from the 13th century. Everything's spelled weird. The grammar doesn't make sense to us. 
We're, and so we have to translate it into modern English. And so I think that's probably, it's analogous to that. I think probably the, uh, what, what, what made uh, the other translations change uh, from long-suffering? Well, first of all, the other translations aren't translating from the King James. I mean, they're translating from the original documents, right? So they're not simply taking the King James and updating it. So uh, an example of something that would do that would be like the New King James Bible would, be, would generally take the King James and would update its English, um, and so, but these other Bibles are, are new translations. They're translations directly from Greek and Hebrew. And so they would be saying, now how do we make this make sense in English? Um, and so, and one of the reasons maybe they wouldn't pick a word like long-suffering uh, is because that's not a word that's really commonly used in English. And so that was a word that maybe was very common in the, in the 17th century when the King James Bible was translated. Um, but probably not so much anymore. At least I can say it's not part of my regular vocabulary. I don't, I don't know about you. So uh, I'm going to skip this slide. So here's kind of a, a spectrum of translations. And so the highly literal translations are the ones that are like, we are gonna, we're going to translate every word, word for word, even if it makes no sense in English. So that's like the interlinear Bible. Uh, and then it's a, it's a sliding scale. So it's not like these fit really neatly into categories. Um, it's a sliding scale that kind of uh, moves from the highly literal, interlinear, makes no sense in English Bible to way on the other side, the message, which is Eugene Peterson's commentary on the Bible. And we talked about that before. So... Um, a free or paraphrased translation, which can be fine to consult, but I wouldn't use it for study. Um, oh, there's, so, um, I, wh why are there some that are above others and stuff like that? There's no reason other than I can't fit them all on one line, basically, yeah. <laughs> so, um, the New American Standard, which is the one that we use, is, is further uh, towards the highly literal side, and so basically they say we want to all we want to do is we want to change the words and, and the grammar uh, into English just enough that it can still make passable sense in English. And so what you get is what's often called a, call it kind of a wooden translation. It's like you can read it and understand it, but it takes some effort sometimes because it's not natural English, uh, which I think is a, is a liability for it. Um, which is why I'm hoping that when they update it, they make the English more readable. And so you can see kind of where some of the other ones are, the King James, New King James. The RSV is the Revised Standard Version. That's an older one. I don't think you can really get it anymore. Um, we're going to talk about the LEB, the Lexham English Bible, in a couple minutes. Uh, the ESV, which is another very popular one, the English Standard Version. The New Revised Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible is a fairly new one. It's an update of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That's a really good one. We've used it a couple times in here. The Net Bible, it's a new English translation. That's another one I'm going to talk to you about in a minute just because it's, it's got some really cool features. And then the NIV, which is the most popular English Bible in the world, like by far. 
Uh, and then there's kind of a gap and you start getting over into the, uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is a little bit more of a, of a paraphrase-like uh, Bible. And then you get over into some of those other ones. The further you get to the right, I think it's the less, particularly on this, on this far side, the less helpful it is, uh, the less I would use it as a, as a study translation. Um, but I think they're fine to read and consult. I don't have a problem with that. So let me just say, I, I would probably only preach from something from the NIV left. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip this to, you can read this, what makes a good translation. Um, all right, why compare translations? It's going to help you see the range of meanings uh, of words and phrases uh, that maybe you wouldn't necessarily know otherwise. Um, it's not going to give you all the answers, and so don't think by comparing translations you're going to be like, oh, now I know what this means because this translation said this. Uh, what it's probably going to do is it's going to help you ask the right questions. It's going to help you see where are there disagreements among people about how this word is translated or how this phrase is translated uh, or the way that this sentence is put together and how, you know, how do they say it differently? How, how do they use different English words to express uh, what they mean? Is that, that going to be more helpful you. It's going to point out to you the key places where there's going to be issues that you may want to study further using some of the other tools that we're learning. Um, and especially in light of what we did last week, comparing a translation will help you to see where doing a word study uh, might be especially helpful, especially if they're translating words in different ways and it's a significant term. seems that, that the passage, uh, the, the meaning of the passage might shift depending on how you translate the word. That could be that could be really important. So what I want you to do is I want you to take, where's this, uh, you had a sheet, I don't have a copy of it, but a sheet you got on your way in that has Philippians 3, 7 to 9 on it in, I think, seven different translations. And so what I would like you to do is I'd like you to take about the next 10 minutes and read through those translations and just mark off a couple places. You don't need to, it doesn't need to be super thorough. Mark off a couple places where you see big differences and where you might want to ask questions about, so do I need to study something there? What, what do I need to see here? Why do they translate this differently? Um, generally speaking, just so you know, on your paper from left to right is kind of that translation spectrum of uh, more highly literal to uh, more uh, idiomatic and paraf paraphrastic and free translation. So take about 10 minutes and do that. All right. So, what did you guys find that might be some issues that you would want to look at as you're studying this text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and everybody goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in Philippians 3.9, the New English translation says that, uh, says, I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. And all the other translations say through faith in Christ. Now, uh, I, I picked this passage because of that. Because I wanted you to see that. So you guys cheated and you went right to it. So there's some other things that we could talk about. But that's the key one. And that's actually a gigantic issue and, and is uh, in, uh, in the world of New Testament scholarship. Um, so uh, many, if not most, evangelical Christians would say, no, it's through faith in Christ. That's what it means. That's what the words mean. Uh, there are others who would say no, based on a number of different factors, uh, including context and, um, and, and other things. It means Christ's faithfulness. The problem is the words and the grammar could mean either. It is good Greek to say either of those things because the only translation that actually doesn't take a stand on which one it is, is the King James. It says, through the faith of Christ. So does that mean Christ's own faith or faithfulness? The Greek word can mean both faith or faithfulness. Or does it mean uh, the faith whose object is Christ? Uh, and so that's a huge debate. One of my professors in divinity school is writing a book on this among many, 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 many other books that have been written just on these two words. It's two words in Greek. Pistis, faith, Christu, Christ. Pistis, Christu. And they write volumes on this and, and, and what it is. So the problem is that that, wor- like that word is actually a part of the way that the Greek word Christ is rendered. So this is a grammar thing, so I don't want to get into it. But there's not actually a separate word in Greek here that means in or of or something like that. It could, it could mean either. Um, and so the way that we translate it in English will differ. Um, so the New English translation has chosen to do it this way, and they, they have reasons why they, they did it that way. I think they're wrong. Um, I think there's lots of reasons that they're wrong. I think there's reasons in the, this context that they're wrong. Um, but we're not going to delve into that right now. What I wanted you to see was that in comparing translations, you suddenly found, here's something that I should probably look at. Um, and rather than just assuming, well, that one's the oddball, therefore they're wrong, do the work to figure out why they're wrong. Or maybe they're right. Now, a lot of people who would, who would say it means this would still say, yes, we're justified by faith alone. Because there are other texts that teach that. They would just be saying, this one isn't saying that. It's referring to Christ's own faithfulness in offering himself up for us. And that is the thing that ends up uh, uh, 
leading to our righteousness because it's not really ours, it's his. Now, I don't, I don't agree that that's what Paul's saying here, but that's how they would explain it. So. Well, that was the fun one. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so... So, the, so a number of the translations in verse 3-8 say that there's surpassing value or surpassing worth. Um, interesting, the, the King James just says the excellency, um, and that's kind of a, that's a different, uh, maybe a different idea. Yeah, so now, yeah, the, the NET says the far greater value. The, the one that I thought that was interesting there was the NLT said the infinite value. And I wondered to myself, is, is the idea of infinity implied there? Or are they just trying to come up with a way to say it's really a lot? Um, I, you know, because I think, well, there's maybe a way that you could say that in English without saying infinite. Because infinite means something. So... That's right, yeah. And so if you understand what that translation is trying to do, then it makes sense why they would translate it that way. That's why it's important uh, to read multiple translations so that you don't, get, you don't get stuck in assuming that the one that you read uh, has the best rendering of it in English. So Janet, you were gonna say something you would share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so same thing in 3.9, uh, the King James says the faith of Christ, and the other ones say faith in Christ. Again, it's the same, it's capturing the same issue there of how do you translate that, that phrase, and then what does it mean? Uh, since you can't, and I think what, what scholars have come to now is saying you can't decide how to translate it and what it means theologically only on the basis of the grammar, and, and the words themselves, because it can mean either one. Uh, and so then you have to ask why, based on the context, based on the, pl- the other ways that Paul uses the same phrase, he uses it seven or eight times in his letters, based on um, his, uh, his theology, how would we understand what Paul means by this? Yeah. Cheryl, you're going to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in three nine. Uh, at the very beginning, all the other translations say, uh, be found in him. The NLT says to become one with him. Uh, again, that may be them trying to explain what, is it, what does it mean to be found in him. Um, theologically, the idea is probably union with Christ. And so the NLT kind of takes that and says, so what it's talking about is us becoming one with Christ by faith. Um, so are those the exact words that are used in the Greek? No. Is that what it means? Maybe. We, we have to talk about it, right? But that, again, there's an issue where we want to say, all right, let's talk about what it means to be found in him. 
And is there significance to the idea of being found? You know, I don't have a good answer for that right now, but it's something that you would need to consider. Anything? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so in verse 3-8, I think every translation except the King James has knowing Christ. Uh, The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. King James says, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And so again, this is where the King James has chosen uh, not to, to... kind of take a firm translation stance and just we're just going to translate it real bare bones uh, and because that's a way that you could translate it. So it could mean um, my knowledge of Christ. Uh, it could also mean Christ's, uh, the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, meaning the knowledge which Christ himself possesses. So Christ, right, so, 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 Again, in terms of the grammar, it could mean either. Now, most of the other translations are saying it, it really seems here, based on the context and what we're talking about, uh, that we're talking about our knowing Christ. So Christ is the object of our knowing. Now, that's one of the reasons because, and actually later um, in, verse, uh, in verse 10, uh, Paul says again, that I may know him. And so just a couple verses later, he says this, pretty much the same thing in a different way. So that would lead me to believe that, yeah, it's, it's Paul's knowing of Christ. And actually, the fact that that idea, the knowledge of Christ, would mean my knowledge, my knowing Christ, and the Christ is the object of my knowledge, would seem to me to point to Paul using the same kind of thing, the same way when he says the faith of Christ. It's the same, it's the same grammar in Greek. Uh, and so for him to say, he's kind of paralleling my knowledge of Christ, my faith in Christ. That's one of the reasons contextually I would say, I think that it's faith in Christ in verse nine. So that's good. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great observation. In, in the NLT, in verse 8, it says, for his sake I have discarded everything else. And in, in the other translations, it's I have suffered loss or I have lost uh, all things. And, uh, and so, and I think that's, I think that's important. Um, those, the other translations, it's, it's passive, right? Something has been done to Paul. He has suffered lost or he has lost things. In the NLT, it's something that he has done. He has discarded those things. So you have to ask, well, what, is it, what does it say? Is, it, is the idea that he's actively saying, no, these things are, are terrible? Is it, I can tell you the word in Greek is, is passive, so it's, he's, it's, it, it denotes something that's happened to him. What about the word um, rubbish? You guys know about this one? 
Yeah, rubbish, dung, garbage. Um, yep. In, yeah, so in verse 7, uh, the New English translation has assets and liabilities instead of gains and loss. Um, the NLT has valuable and worthless things. Uh, and so then you're asking, oh, do I need to think about what, what those words mean? Is there, is there any distinct difference in what those translations mean when they're saying that? How does that change it in English? Um, just for fun, if, if you were to, to look up the word for rubbish or dung or garbage, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a racy word. Um, something you probably wouldn't say in polite company. Referring, it's a it's a strong word referring to excrement. This, this is what the Bible says. I'm just saying. Yeah. No. It's, so it's it's yeah dung. So dung. Yeah. It's a tech, yeah. It would be a technical term for dung. So and so yeah. It's it, it's a so there's some of them that will translate it that way, um, although even dung itself is not a commonly used English word, so I don't really know what you would say. Yeah, so, yeah, so we use it for, to talk about animals, so, you know, I, it would be a more colloquial translation. I count it as dog poop. I don't, I don't so something like that. I don't, I don't know. I, oh yeah, I don't know. Or elephant poop. All of them, including the King James. Yeah, King James did not translate the King James Bible. Okay, just, yeah. So, but all of them were, were uh, translation by committee. Yeah. All right, so a couple quick hits. Uh, I think I mentioned this already. Every translation is an interpretation in some regards, so no translation can claim to not be an interpretation in some way because every translation is picking uh, ways to, uh, to render certain words and ways to, like we already saw, uh, every translation is, is, is really choosing to translate uh, a phrase like faith in Christ in some way. Um, and so this is just for fun. Uh, translations that claim to be word for word don't always do a better job of translating than thought-for-thought translations. So this is, I I have fun with this. Um, So here's Genesis 3.30. The the literal translation, literal, so I just, I took it, this is my translation, and I did it, I tried to do it as literally as possible. And she said, behold, my female slave Bilhah go into her, and she will bear upon my knees, and I will be built from her. Make sense? Yep. So, the New American Standard says, here's my maid Bilhah, go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Okay. So, King James, very similar. Um, Now, the ESV says, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf. So then it's taking that idea of that she may bear on my knees and saying, okay, that's a Hebrew idiom for giving birth on my behalf, that even I may have children with her. And then interestingly, both the CSV and the NIV bring that idea of build back in. 
She'll bear children for me so that through her, I too can build a family. I, can, I too can build a family through her. And so in terms of actual uh, saying, well, this translates more closely the actual word that's there in Hebrew, the CSB and the NIV are actually better in that sense. They're closer because the Hebrew word is build. It's not have children. That's a different Hebrew word. But that's probably what the Hebrew means. So that's why they translate it that way. So it's not quite as simple as people will make it. Uh, one more. <clears throat> Proverbs sixteen twenty seven: A worthless man digs evil and upon his lips are like scorching fire. And so... The New American Standard, the ESV, the CSB all say uh, his words or his speech. So there's no mention of lips. King James says, in his lips there is as a burning fire. And then the NIV says, on their lips it is like scorching fire. So actually the NIV is closer to the Hebrew because the Hebrew says, upon his lips. Not in his words. Now, and Hebrew says, upon his lips, that is a figure of speech for talking about the way that they talk. So it is very accurate to say his words or his speech in English, because that's what it means. That's what that figure of speech means. Uh, two especially helpful translations I want to point you to as you look at translations. So one is the New English translation, and I'm not saying it's helpful because it uh, has all the weird stuff in the one we just did. Um, that's not the reason. The reason is because the New English translation has, is, it's like a study Bible. It has 60,000 notes that are all about why they translated things certain ways. Okay? So you can get that at uh, that, that website. I'm going to link to it on, on, the, uh, on the, the page where I post the audio from tonight. Uh, and so uh, you can read why they chose to translate things in Philippians 3.9 the way they did. I still don't agree with them, but at least they're transparent about why they're doing it. Uh, so for most things in which there's, there's debate, they'll have a note for it. And again, I don't always agree with them, but it's good to see uh, why. So again, we just did Genesis 3.30, or uh, 33. Uh, here's my servant Bill. I sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I can have a family through her. And then there's a little... You can't see it because of the screen, but footnote. The footnote in the uh, NET is the idiom of built up here refers to having a family. It's saying the Hebrew says built up, and then it's got a little at the end where it says BDB125SV. That's a marker to send you to a Hebrew dictionary if you what that is. It's Brown Driver Briggs is a Hebrew dictionary. The other one is the Lexham English Bible. You can get this one a couple different places. Um, Bible Gateway, version. you can download it. Um, it was developed by the people who do, do Logos Bible software, which is the Bible software I use. Uh, and it has footnotes in it, so not quite the same as the NAT, which has all these study notes, but it's got footnotes that will uh, explain um, the, like they'll, they'll put it in like brackets when they translate something in, uh, in English that isn't exactly what it says in Hebrew or Greek, uh, and they'll say, why? Or they'll say, hey, just so you know, this is literally what it means. So again, Exodus 34, 6, and 
This is the translation they have there. And then where it says slow to anger, they have a footnote that says literally slow to anger means long of nose. And I actually used this a lot when I was in Hebrew and I could not figure out to save my life what the Hebrew meant. I would go and I would look at the Lexham English Bible, which I probably wasn't supposed to do, but my professor wasn't watching me then. And uh, I went and I found it, and it's like, oh, that's super helpful because I can see here's the way they would literally translate it, and then here's the way that they put it in English. So, homework for two weeks from now, your workbook, 109 to 114, dig deeper, 77 to 82. It's one chapter about translations. Uh, And then, yeah, so two weeks from today, we'll be back for lesson nine. Yeah, is it the day after Memorial Day? All right. So come back from the shore. Don't miss it.